You are listening to the Resonate Church Sermon Podcast. Resonate is a collegiate church planning network in the Northwest. If you'd like to learn more, please visit us at resonate.net. Well, hello, Resonate. Thank you for joining us today. My name is Matthew Young. I'm the site pastor over in Moscow and uh, University of Idaho, and I'm excited to get to be here with you today as we continue through the sermon series that we're calling The Red Letters, as each week we explore some different teachings and words of Jesus in the New Testament. And from that, we get to learn a lot about who He is, but also what He was all about. And that's certainly the case for today's passage. And so if you have your copy of Scripture, I invite you to go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 4 is where we'll be today. Uh, As I was reflecting on this passage, I was reminded of an experience when I was in college and I was learning to water ski. Uh, I uh, had some friends who spent a lot of time on the water and and some people in an actual part of my church who had a a boat and we'd go out and I decided one day, uh, one summer, I said, I'm going to learn how to water ski, guys. Teach me to water ski. And so uh, we went out and they patiently uh, watched me fall down and come pick me up and uh, let me try again. And finally, I was beginning to get the the hang of it. But uh, part of the challenge for me that day was it was not a great day to be water skiing. It was really windy, really choppy. The waters uh, almost had waves. It was so choppy. And so, which if you've ever water skied, you know that's not great. But uh, one experience I had there, when I was uh, skiing and I got outside the wake, so it was really rough and I had begun to get the hang of it, but hadn't quite learned how to fall. And, uh, and I remember my skis got, essentially got caught in a wave, if you will, it went into a wave and it threw me forward. And so I dive forward and the ski came and hit me right in the lip, hit me right there and split my lip wide open. And I came up out of the water and spit and there's blood everywhere. And, uh, but I remember that moment, I remember thinking, Matthew, don't give up. Uh, it would be easy to give up right now but you're going to learn how to water ski. You got to get back on the skis and go for it. And so I remember, I remember there, my friends in the boat were like, Matthew, are you done? Are you okay? I was like, bring it around. Let's go again. And I was, I was like amped up. And I was like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to be, I'm going to conquer water skiing. And so, but I remember that moment. I was like, I have to decide right now because if I don't do it now, I'll never try it again. And, and so I got back on those skis and that's how I became a world-class water skier. That's the part's not true, but uh, I do still enjoy water sports to this day. Um, I think looking back to that moment, um, as I also did uh, this week that we're filming this, it's uh, actually the same week of the, the anniversary, the 78th anniversary of the D-Day invasion of Normandy when Allied forces stormed the beaches of France to take back Europe from the Nazis. And uh, I love I love World War II history. And, uh, and so this year I, I was doing some reading and uh, came across a story that I'd never read before about a particular soldier uh, who to- stormed the, part of the force that stormed the beaches of Normandy that day. Um, in fact, he was a general. He was the only general to be a part of the, the first wave of soldiers to take the beach. And so the first guys that got out of the boats, the first uh, wave of soldiers who began to take bullets and take shots from, uh, from the enemy who were... Um, in the, all the emplacements there along along the coast, and and so he helped lead. He, in fact, he requested, personally requested, let me be part of the first wave. Let me be one of the first men on the beach. Uh, as a general, he said this. He said, "I don't want to lead from behind, from safety. I want to be on the beach with my men, leading from the front." From that, uh, they actually landed because the currents where they were at Utah Beach. He landed about a mile off of course from where they were intended to land. Uh, but when he hit the when he hit the beach, he said, "All right, we'll start the war from right here." And from there, continued to guide the landing of the rest of the forces. And the, the following waves of uh, ended up being um, twenty thousand, twenty one thousand 
soldiers landed at that beach under his leadership. And, uh, and despite the crazy scenario, they only had 126 casualties out of those 21,000 men. The general's name was Theodore Roosevelt Jr. Theodore Roosevelt might sound familiar to you. Teddy Roosevelt, he was president of the United States of America and this was his son taking the beaches that day. He, at that point, he was 56 years old and uh, he was loved by the leadership, everyone who was under his leadership. His rank, his age, and his name all said that he didn't have to be there. He didn't have to put himself in that scenario, but he chose to do so. He chose to put himself in harm's way because that's, kind, that's the kind of leader he was. And I think if we reflect on that, that's the kind of leader we want in our life. We want a leader who will do that, who will go into the hard thing with us, who will be in it with us, uh, in that hard spot, who will uh, not abandon us and leave us to go and do it on ourselves, but be in it with us. We want someone who will lead like that. We want someone who will be self-sacrificial and not um, self-protective. We want a leader who um, understands what we're going through. We love leaders like that. And in fact, people loved him and his leadership, so much so that they gave him a Congressional Medal of Honor, the highest award you can get for military service um, for the, what he did that day. In fact, the citation reads uh, of what he accomplished that day and what he did that day. Uh, when they gave him the award, this is what they said. For gallantry and intrepidity at the risk of his life above and beyond the call of duty on 6th of June, 1944, his valor, courage, and presence in the very front of the attack and his complete unconcern at being under heavy fire inspired the troops to heights of enthusiasm and self-sacrifice. Although the enemy had the beach under constant direct fire, Brigadier General Roosevelt moved from one locality to another, rallying men around him, directed and personally led them against the enemy. Under his seasoned, precise, calm, and unfaltering leadership, assault troops reduced beach strong points and rapidly moved inland with minimal casualties. I love some of those things that describe his, his engagement, uh, how he was precise, calm, and unfaltering in his leadership. One article that I read about Ted Roosevelt Jr. said that he had been preparing for this moment on the beaches of Normandy all his life that everything in his life, his military service, his, his, uh, his, his service as a civilian, everything had led him to this moment where he was able to lead like that, where he was able to be a man in this defining moment that others looked up to and in fact help lead to the victory uh, of that day of taking the beaches. Um, I think the same thing can be said of all good leaders, all great leaders. They didn't just show up one day and all of a sudden they're a great leader, but it was lots of small decisions along the way that made them into who they became, uh, preparing them for the defining moments in their life. Lots of small decisions along the way of them saying, I'm not gonna give up now, I'm gonna continue to move forward. I'm not gonna uh, give up when it gets hard. I'm not gonna get, uh, quit when it gets difficult, but I'm gonna stick in this. I'm gonna stick with it. I'm gonna continue to, to lead and, and do what needs to be done, to be obedient to the, to the instructions that I was given like he was that day, to take the beach no matter what. Um, it is also true of our Lord Jesus. And as we look at today's passage, we see that this is one of those moments, uh, though it gets a lot, of, uh, a lot of press and is a big moment in the story of Jesus, we see that it's one of many moments 
that prepare him for what he's moving towards, moving towards his death on the cross for us. And so as we look at this, I think it's important for us to keep in mind that this is Jesus essentially becoming who he was going to be, moving towards that great defining moment in his life that we all remember him for. Uh, Matthew chapter 4, if you'll read with me, verses 1 through 11. It says this, um, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry, as you can imagine. The tempter then came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. And Jesus answered, It is written, Man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Quoting Deuteronomy 8.3 Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you're the Son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command His angels concerning you, and they will lift you up with their hands, so that you shall not strike your foot against the stone. Satan there, quoting Psalm 91. Verse 7, Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Deuteronomy 6.16 Again, the devil took him to a high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give to you, Satan said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Deuteronomy 6.13 Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. So anytime you read a passage like this, you should just take a step back and just make some initial observations. And there's a lot going on here. There could be probably three different sermons preached on this one passage. And so I don't want to miss all of those, although we may not spend a ton of time on them. I think just some general observations as you read through this, some things that jump out to you. Uh, at some point when you're reading through this, you begin a process. You be, you're going to ask the question, wait, is this real? Are these real temptations? Could Jesus actually have chosen to do these things that Jesus that Satan was offering him? Could he have actually sinned in these moments? And I think the question, the answer to that question is yes. Uh, As we read through this, just from this text alone, we see that neither Jesus or Satan act like this isn't real. At no point does Satan like say, oh, I know you can't really do this, but I'm going to tempt you to do this. I know you'll say no, but he never says that. And Jesus never says, come on, Satan, you know I can't do these things. I'm God, I can't sin. He never never, uh, references that this isn't a real temptation that he has. Um, in fact, Jesus didn't play the God card here. Sometimes when we read stories about Jesus and we see him do these amazing, amazing things or, uh, or do something that um, we think, I can never do that because uh, we think, that, oh, because well, he's God, he did that. But we need to know that he engaged moments like this. He engaged his life on earth just like any other human did. He did it just like we do it, yet without sin. Um, he wasn't pretending. He wasn't acting like a human. Uh, he was fully engaging humanity. In fact, Hebrews fourteen, uh, sorry, Hebrews four fifteen says it like this: We do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are. Yet he did not sin. So he engaged humanity just as we do. He came to this broken world where it's hard place to live and experienced all of it. Yet, the way he did it, he did it without sin. And this begins to speak a lot to our Christology, this, the theology of Christ. How did Jesus do what he did? 
How did he manage this? Who was he really? What made up the Christ, our Christology? The scriptures teach us, and this is a really big passage that helps communicate this, is that he was both God and man. He was both God and man. And that's mind-boggling to us because we don't have anything that compares to that in our lives. We're just fully man. We are not God. But he is both God and man. And how did he accomplish that? Well, Philippians chapter 2 says it like this, that uh, while he could have accessed, uh, accessed his divine power, he didn't. He chose not to. It's like he set those things aside. I'm not going to use that, but instead I'm going to fully engage my humanity. He, and, and in doing so, he relied on the leadership and power of the Holy Spirit. You see in this passage there in verse 1, it says that he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. And it's the Spirit who took them there. He didn't just like, Where'd I, how'd I get here? He didn't just choose on his own. I want to go for a walk in the desert. He said, I'm, gonna, I'm following the Spirit's leadership in his life. And we see that it depends on the power of the Spirit to work through him. And you see this throughout his ministry, the amazing things that he does, the miracles that he performs, the, the insight that he seems to have into scenarios, into situations, into people's thoughts. It's the, it's the working of the Spirit who knows all things and works in him. Uh, so he follows the leadership and the power of the Holy Spirit. And then he trusts in the love and the provision of the Father. He trusts in the love and the provision of God the Father. And we see this here that, uh, that he... He, he trusted God in these moments uh, to be with him and to guide him and lead him. So that's how we understand how he engaged his humanity, depending on the Spirit, following the Father. A few things in each of these temptations that stand out to us, again, just some observations we make. Um, one, Jesus is hungry. Why was he hungry? Because he was human. He was hungry because he was human and because he'd been fasting for 40 days. And maybe once again, you read that, whoa, 40 days of fasting? I tried to fast for one day once, and man, I could barely make it through. How did he fast for 40? Well, you should know that it's actually possible. If you have water, and if you prepare for this in a proper way, it's possible. People have done it. People have fasted for longer than 40 days. They've gone on hunger strikes for longer than 40 days. So it's possible to, to survive fasting for 40 days. And so that is not... Uh, a divine thing. It's a, a human thing. If you're going to choose to do that, you should research it and prepare yourself for it. But it's, that's not out of the question for, for Jesus uh, as a human. We also see, that as you read through this, um, this first temptation involves eating, which is uh, kind of a nod and a look and, a, and pointing back to the first temptation. The first temptations that, human, uh, that humans encountered, Adam and Eve in the garden. And while Adam and Eve had a perfect scenario where they're not in a desolate place, but they're in this beautiful garden, this wonderful place where God sustained them, and they had perfect, unhindered relationship with God, just like Jesus does um, before the fall, uh, and yet they faltered. We see Jesus in this scenario in a, in a less ideal place, the wilderness, it says, and yet he did not falter when temptation came. So there's, there's some parallels here that look back and, and, and kind of point to this, the Adam and Eve's temptation. And, and how Jesus encountered similar temptations here and yet did not sin. And also points to the story of Israel throughout this. There's some hints uh, that point to the story and the history of Israel and how they engaged God and the temptations they faced. We also see that both Satan and Jesus don't question if he could actually turn the stones to bread. Uh, Satan, Satan presents it to him like it's a, an act he could have, he had the power to do. Um, and, say, and Jesus doesn't say, no, no, I can't do that. What, do you want me to turn stones to bread? No, he doesn't say, I can't do that. He says, I won't do that. Um, and again, he quotes Deuteronomy 8.3, pointing to the fact that life involves more than just eating, uh, eating food, but we need God's word. We need God's voice. We need God's word in our life too. 
Uh, temptation number two, some observations. Um, he says, throw yourself off the temple. Again, he takes him to this, this high place and says, throw yourself off this temple. And essentially he says, God will save you. Uh, it says it right here in the Bible. And so he's quoting scripture. We see that it's not just Jesus that quotes scripture in responding, um, but it's also Satan who quotes scripture. And we would expect, sometimes you read through this and you see Jay, it's anything that Satan does, you question like, whoa, whoa, I know he's this deceiver. I know he can't be trusted. I know he's a liar. And, and you may wonder like, hey, did he misquote this? Actually, the quote was pretty clean. Uh, he quotes Psalm 91 verses 11 and 12 pretty well. Um, but what he does is he tries to twist it, just like he, he always does. He tries to twist truth um, to, to, to take our eyes off the prize, to, to, to distract us from what it might actually say. What that scripture says is that God looks out for and takes care of those who love and trust him. That's what Psalm 91 is about, that God will take care of you. If you trust God, he's going to take care of you. Um, but here, Satan tries to get Jesus to test that, tries to get Jesus to test God, to create a scenario that shows that God will take care of him. Um, but there's no testing in the original passage in Psalm 91. As you read through the scenarios in Psalm 91, it doesn't, he's not testing God. It's just scenarios that David finds and Psalmist finds himself in um, and, and yet sees God provide for him in those moments. Uh, Jesus recognizes that there's a fine line between trusting God for the needs of life and challenging God to rescue him from artificially created difficulties. He says, I'm not going to create a scenario that's difficult uh, and make God do something about it. Um, and again, uh, again, in this temptation, he responds, the red letters here are simply Jesus quoting scripture. The words of Jesus are the words of the Bible as he quotes Deuteronomy 6.16 here in response to temptation number two. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Observations for temptation number three. Uh, Jesus, doesn't, once again, doesn't deny that Satan can offer what he's offering. He says, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world. Um, and you may say, well, how can he do that? Like, didn't God, the God of the world, right? Um, well, actually, there, there's some things in Scripture that communicate who Satan is. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 4.4, it refers to him as the God of this age. During this time in humanity, and I think it spans from back then even to now, that during this time, he is the God of this age. Ephesians 2.2 says that he is the ruler of the kingdom of the air. He has rule of this kingdom of the air that we find ourselves in. Um, and in, uh, John, throughout John's gospel, he is referred to as the ruler of this world, the ruler of this world. And so he has some authority, has some rule, if you will. He has influence in our world. Satan has influence in our world. And so what he's saying is, I will give up my influence on the kingdoms of the world if you'll bow down and worship me. Um, I think that's a fascinating temptation that he offers to Jesus right there. And we'll look more about what that means, but uh, um, what would it mean for Satan to give up his influence on the world? Also, once again, in this passage, we see that Jesus responds with scripture. He responds for a third time, quoting Deuteronomy, um, referring back to God's word in response to these temptations. He doesn't go to philosophy. He doesn't go to logic. He doesn't have clever words. He doesn't meme Satan. He doesn't talk about Satan's mom uh, with some harsh words or anything. He just simply relies on the Bible, simply relies on the scripture that he had memorized, that he knew well uh, to combat, combat these lies, to combat these temptations. He goes to that truth. I think in an age that we find ourselves in, 
um, where the Bible is regularly criticized and is said to be antiquated and untrustworthy for us to use. We see that Jesus went to the Bible, and so it's safe for us to go to the Bible as well. When Jesus was uh, encountered hard things, he didn't uh, just go to his own intellect, but he went to the Scriptures uh, to, to, to battle these temptations. And I think this is a great reminder for us that it's worth taking time to memorize the Word, to, to take time to, to, to memorize the words of the Bible, to put them into your head and allow the Spirit to remind you of those things at just the right moment and move those things to your heart, that they begin to infect your prayers, that the, the words of God begin to be the words that you depend on in moments of darkness and moments of trial and moments of uncertainty and insecurity. You can lean on God's Word and His truth to remind you of what is real, what is true. You should spend time. If you get nothing else out of this, this sermon today, I hope that you would be prompted to go and memorize Scripture, to go and memorize God's Word. Some other observations that I think really stand out and begin to help us understand what we want to get from this passage here today. Uh, it's, the, it's this. Notice we're here still at the beginning. We're only in chapter 4 of Matthew. So we're at the beginning of, of the story of Jesus. Um, so far in the book of Matthew, we've seen the birth narrative, you know, with the angels and the star and the shepherds and all of that. Um, but Jesus wasn't really engaging that personally. Those, all those things happened around him. And then we fast forward to, to chapter 3 where we pick up, um, where we see the, the, the baptism of Jesus, where we see him being baptized as a grown man. Uh, and, and at his baptism, something interesting happens. Um, in that moment, uh, it says that uh, the Holy Spirit descends on him in the form of a dove. I don't know what that looked like, uh, but that's what it says. And I don't know what this sounded like, but it says that the heavens opened up and a voice cries out and says um, in verse 17 of chapter 3, This is my son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. And so we hear the voice of the Father, the presence of the Spirit, the voice of the Father speaking and says, That's my boy, I, and I love him. And I'm pleased with him. And you can imagine Jesus being baptized. And this is the beginning. From here, he goes into the wilderness. And from there, he goes into his full ministry where he's teaching publicly and, uh, and drawing and, and bringing his disciples and communicating with them and doing miracles. All of that moving towards the cross. The very beginning of this is where we find ourselves. Um, at the very beginning, we see... Uh, that his identity was affirmed in chapter three. In chapter four, his identity is being challenged. Because if you notice, every time uh, Satan comes to him, the first temptations, first two temptations is blatant and it's implied in the third one, that Satan comes to him and says, if you are the son of God, if you are the son of God, do this. And so his stat, his, in chapter three, his identity was affirmed. In chapter four, his identity is being challenged. But I think it's important for us to recognize that Satan doesn't, uh, doubt Jesus' identity. It's not that he's questioning if he's a son of God, uh, whether or not he is, but he's, he's essentially challenging uh, what he's going to do with his identity. Jesus doesn't question in these moments. He doesn't reply, like, am I the son of God? That's not what he says. Uh, but instead, the temptation here that, G that Satan is presenting Jesus, the temptation is to misuse his identity, his position, and his clout, or his prerogative as a son of God. What's he going to do with who he is? What's he going to do with his identity? And so in many ways, what we see is that Jesus is establishing the kind of Messiah he's going to be, the kind of Christ he's going to be. How is he going to do the ministry that he has laid out before him? How is he going to go and fulfill the role and the mission that, Jesus, that, that God the Father has given him in sending him to earth? 
How is he going to do these things? In essence, he's, he's determining the kind of Messiah that he's going to be. And here's what that means for us. Once again, we'll walk through each of these three temptations. And each of these three temptations helps us to know what we learn, or helps reveal something about who Jesus is. and helps us see who he's going to be as a leader and as our, as our Christ, our Messiah. Temptation number one, turning the stones to bread. At the heart of this temptation is the question, will Jesus use his power as the Son of God to take care of himself? Will he use his power, uh, he will use what he has at his disposal to provide for his needs and his comforts? Will he yield, uh, sorry, will he wield his divine power to get what he wants? Will he, you know, just say, oh, I can, so I'm going to. I'm capable of using who I am as the Son of God to get whatever I want in this world. Uh, and this world is hard and I would like a nicer life. Uh, is he going to use those things to take care of himself? provide for his needs, and provide for his comforts? Or, instead, will he do what he instructs his disciples? Well, he would, just two chapters later, that he'll instruct his disciples to do. Well, he, uh, when he teaches them to pray, he says, trust and depend on the Father. Trust and depend on the Father for your daily bread. Will he do what he's going to tell others to do? Uh, a New Testament theologian, uh, Robert H. Stein, who wrote a book called Jesus the Messiah, um, he says it like this, and I think this is fascinating. And uh, He says, um, for Jesus, was messiahship an excuse for privileges or a responsibility for serving? Was it an excuse for, for privileges or was it a responsibility for serving? The question for him was, how could he call others to follow in obedience, faith, and submission to God if he was not willing to do the same? And I think that's what he was faced with in that moment, in that temptation. Who am I going to be? I can, but should I? It's, I'm capable of doing these things, but is that what's best? What we see is that Jesus decides to trust God for food. <laughs> he chooses to believe that food is not the only thing that sustains him. He's going to choose in this moment of weakness, after fasting for 40 days, to rely on God and not rely on himself. He believes that he can trust every word from the Lord God and trust that God would take care of him, just like he did with Israel in the wilderness. He knows that he can trust God. For Jesus' for Jesus' leadership, this means that he's not going to use his power to make his life better or provide for his comforts. Jesus is not all about comfort. If he was, he wouldn't have come in the first century. He would at least, you know, came later when there was at least running water and maybe waited for smartphones. Uh, but he said, no, no, I, I'm going to come to an uncomfortable time, to an uncomfortable place, and comfort is not what's most important to me. I'm not going to provide for myself to make my life easier or better uh, or more comfortable. Instead, I'm going to do what's best. Um, he's not going to access his power selfishly, but instead depend on God and the Holy Spirit to work through him. I think it's fascinating if we began to take that in and see who Jesus was, what kind of leader he was going to be, what kind of man he was going to be that he was establishing here in this moment. Temptation number two, temptation number two the temple jump. At the heart of this temptation is the question, will Jesus use his position well, he uses position as the Son of God to get, get the Father to save him. Um, again, the temptation here is to create a cool spectacle for all to see, to demonstrate who he is, and to kick off his ministry. This would have been cool. I mean, the temple was always a busy place. There were always people present. If he would have jumped off of there and the angels come and rescue him, what a great way to say, ta-da, I'm here, guys. Uh, I'm here to do my thing. What a great way to kick things off. Not a bad idea. Um, and also the temptation there was to test the Father's love. 
again, just previously, he'd been affirmed vocally, you're my son whom I love. But does he really love him? How does he know that he loves him? Why don't you create a scenario that makes God prove that he really loves you? I think we've all met uh, that person who has a powerful father, who has uh, influential parents, and they, they know it. Um, maybe this is just on a TV show. It's a common you know, plot that might play out in a TV show. Or maybe you've actually gone to school with someone like this. Or maybe you work with someone like this that they're important or their family's important or something like that, and they, they use that to get their way. That's the temptation Jesus was experiencing here. I know when you encounter those people in your life, they're annoying, right? You're annoyed by them. But if you're honest, then you have to say, but if I was in their shoes, I would have a hard time not doing the same thing. Um, and that's what Jesus was faced right with, with right here. If I'm the son of God, surely God the Father is gonna take care of me. What if I do this? What if I do this to test him? Um, again, Robert H. Stein, if, we, if he lived the life of faith and obedience that God had assigned him, he could rest in the assurance of God loving, God's loving control of his life. And I think in this moment, what he had to recognize is he had to choose to trust that God was going to take care of him, that God was going to manage his PR campaign. God was going to create other opportunities for him to be seen for who he is. He didn't have to create uh, or manufacture scenarios um, that allowed him to be glorified or allowed him uh, to get attention. He didn't have to test the Father's love and he didn't have to flex his identity to prove anything to himself or to the crowds. He simply uh, had to trust that God loved him. Um, he seems that uh, in doing so, and, and, and if he would have taken that jump, it, we might read it and say, oh, that would have been an act of faith, but really it would have been an act of unbelief. God had already said, I love you. So he could trust that, he could rest in that. To do so would have not trusted what God had already said. But instead what we see is he trusts the Father to do amazing things to make him known. And he doesn't have to manufacture it on his own. Temptation number three, mountaintop Satan worship. <laughs> uh, at the heart of this temptation is the question. At the heart of this temptation is the question, will Jesus use politics? Will he use politics to bypass the cross to make the world a better place? And he may say, like, hang on, how did you get to that uh, from this temptation? Well, again, he's saying, Satan is saying, I'll, I'll uh, give up my influence on the kingdoms of the world. Um, once again, Robert Stein says this about this. This is a bit lengthy quote, so follow me here. This temptation, it involves a political solution to the world's problems. A political solution. Here's how. If the basic needs of the world could be solved by political action, this was the way Jesus should go. Uh, with the kingdoms of the world given to him, and no longer under the influence of, of Satan, if the kingdoms of the world given to him, he could rid the world of hunger and war, injustice, poverty, and so on. Sounds appealing. This would be a crossless solution. A crossless solution would resolve such problems, and it would do so with no need of great suffering on his part. On the other hand, if the basic needs of the world involve forgiveness, reconciliation with God, and salvation from future judgment, then such a victory by Jesus would be a shallow one. I think that is profound. I think you begin to take that in and recognize what Satan is offering him is a significant deal for him to say, I won't mess with anything anymore. I won't cause issues. I won't create uh, harm for humans. I won't create wars and poverty and injustice. Instead, I'll take my hands off and it's all yours. If you'll only worship me. If I'm honest, 
There are days on this broken world that I wish you would have taken the deal. There are days in my limited uh, view of things, my uh, finite view of time and space and the world around me that I think, oh, that sounds nice, actually. And seemingly, if he would have done this, it would have made our life easier. Um, and it would have been an easy way out for him. He could have avoided the cross. But thankfully, Jesus didn't take the easy way. And he didn't settle for shallow salvation, even if it would have been a popular opinion. He didn't do what was popular, but he did what was important. Again, he said, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. His response was quoting Deuteronomy 6.13, and honestly, he's saying the same thing that's said in the Ten Commandments, the very first of the Ten Commandments. You're to have no other gods before me. You're to worship nothing else. Um, and Jesus knew that. Um, and he knew that nothing good comes out of worshiping anything other than God. It's at the heart of who he is. He says, I can't worship anything else. In fact, uh, it's, it's, um, he knew that our deepest need was dealing with the fact that we are constantly worshiping other things other than God. That's what Romans 1 talks about is that we have found ourselves not worshiping the creator, but the creation. Not worshiping God, but worshiping what he's created. It's a flaw that we all have, something we've all contributed to and done at some point. From the very beginning at Adam and Eve to us today, we all have that issue. That create, we worship what's created or we worship ourselves instead of worshiping God. And Jesus said, that's not okay. That's not a great way. That's not what you're made for. And instead, he says, I have to worship God. I can't worship anything else. And as he stood there experiencing perfect, unhindered, unmarred relationship with God the Father, because he had never experienced sin. And he knew that he couldn't give that up, which is what he would do if he chose to receive what Satan was offering him. That he would give up that unhindered relationship with the Father if he sinned. Um, he couldn't give that up because that's the very thing he came to secure for us. He came to bring about reconciliation between us and God so that we could have that unhindered relationship with God, which we have the opportunity to look forward to in Christ and eternity. Jesus would not take shortcuts, but instead he would remain, remain obedient to the Father and carry out the plan for salvation. He wouldn't take political shortcuts, but he'd do what God called him to do and carry out the mission he'd been sent to carry out. So what does all this mean for us? What's the application for us here today? As we take all of this in and think about this, what does it mean for us? Well, one big thing is that we can trust the leader that Jesus is. We can trust him. When we see the way he responded, the way he acted here in a lot of these temptations, it helps us to trust him more, the kind of leader he is. When it's common today to question leadership, to challenge authority, because so many times the authority and the, the leadership in our lives has failed. They've been untrustworthy. They've been unfaithful. They've done things that we don't think were best in the way. It's easy to criticize leadership, and it's a very popular thing to do today. In the midst of bad leadership that we experience, Jesus is a beacon of light and a sea of darkness. He is a breath of fresh air and a room full of stench. Jesus is so refreshing as we look at how he handles these situations. Once again, we love a leader who will be in it with us, not standing far off, telling us what to do, but not, and, but not knowing what we're experiencing. Know as that Hebrews passage says, and this passage shows that Jesus was in it with us and he knows what we experience on a daily basis because he himself experienced it. We love leadership like that. 
We love leadership that is self-sacrificing, that is willing to give up, to not take the easy road, to not protect themselves, but instead get in the dirt with us. They don't avoid hardship, but they embrace, they embrace hardship, not just for the sake of it, but for the sake of others. We love leadership like that, just like we love what uh, the story of Theodore Roosevelt Jr. on the beaches of Normandy, that we find ourselves stirred by this example of who Jesus was. We love leadership like that, and in that, we can say, I want, uh, I want this leadership in my life. And in fact, what this story should do is prompt us to lead us to say, hey, let's worship him. Let's worship Jesus. When you read stories and you see how he acts, how he communicates the red letters that he relies on the truth of God, that's accessible to us too. When we see what he does and how he does it, 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 it woos us. It stirs our affections for him. It should. So that we can come to a place that we are enamored with him and how well he did what he did that we can stand back and say that Jesus is brilliant. Jesus is amazing. And if you don't think so, well then frankly, I say that you don't know him well enough. You need to get to know him more because you will. The more you get to know Jesus, the more you look at his words, the more you look at his life, the more you'll be in awe of him. And you'll be prompted to worship him as you should, as you should. And the second thing it does is it leads us to follow him. It leads us to follow him. It leads him to say, you can be my leader. I will be your disciple. I will be your follower. So after you worship him, just simply do that, follow him. Let his example inform you in your own leadership opportunities. All of us have leadership opportunities, no matter who you are or where you are, no matter how significant or insignificant you think you are. First off, you get to lead yourself. You get to lead yourself. But I, I know that every one of us has some other place of leadership, some other place that we can step into to lead others. And maybe it's, uh, maybe it's just your friends. Maybe it's your roommates. Uh, maybe it's your own family. Maybe it's your kids or, or your spouse that you can step into in ways and lead like Jesus did to look to his example in your life and apply them to the decisions and the, play, and the trials and the things that you're facing. If you do that, then you, you don't use your power uh, and influence selfishly. You don't use the power that you have at your disposal uh, to do things just for yourself. And you also won't use your position to get what you want. Maybe you have a position of power. Maybe you have a position of influence and authority where you people look up to you and the decisions you make affect other people's lives. You won't use that to get what you want and to make your life easier. You won't use that to make a name for yourself, but instead you'll trust God to be your PR manager, uh, your public relations manager to help guide and lead your life just like Jesus did. And thirdly, you won't use politics to take the easy way out and accomplish short-sighted goals. You won't find yourself having to wheel and deal to take uh, to make small steps of, um, of victory and, and then instead miss out on the big goals of life. You won't find yourself um, letting go of, of, of obedience to God um, so that you can get uh, small victories in your life. And then finally, you'll live sacrificially, not just for the sake of it, but for the good of others. You'll be willing to give up so that others can have. You'll be willing to give up so that others can know the truth of Jesus Christ. Just like Jesus, the heart of the gospel is, is giving up so that others can have. And you'll find yourself as you follow Jesus and his leadership that you'll live like him. You'll be willing to give up so that others can have. As we see in this, as we continue to read the, the narrative throughout the gospels, we see that Jesus didn't stop being tempted. 
These same issues continue to come up as he interacted with his disciples and his family, as he interacted with the religious leaders. These same temptations continue to present themselves. But the reality is, he had already made the decision of who he's going to be. And when these following uh, subsequent temptations came up, he was already set, and this is the road I'm going to walk. This is the path I'm going to be on. I'm going to continue to be obedient to the Father, no matter what, in the days that come ahead. And I think that's true for us as well. That we can take a step back, we can say, I want to follow you. Jesus, be with me. Spirit, guide me. Father, help me to trust you in the difficulties that I'm facing, in difficulties that I'm encountering, that you'll be there present with me to help me face the temptations that I face. And if I make the decision today, it'll be so much easier to continue to make those decisions to follow you in the days to come, to walk in your ways, the way of life. Resonate Church, may we be those kind of people that read the words of Jesus when he quotes scripture and do the same, to trust the Father, to lean on the Holy Spirit to work in us and through us, to know that he doesn't abandon us and leave us, but he's with us always. May that be who we are. May that be who you are today and this week. Continue to process these things, reflect on these temptations and see how they are true, how, they, how you experience similar temptations in your life and how you can follow Jesus and his example, trusting his leadership, worshiping him throughout, uh, allowing him to be our Lord and our Savior. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you that you don't abandon us and leave us. God, that you're in it with us. You understand what we experience. You know the temptations and the trials, the challenges that we face in this broken world. Uh, but you've said, hey, comfort's not most, the most important thing, but being obedient to the Father is the most important thing. And you've given us everything we need to be obedient to you, to trust you in those difficult moments, to follow you. And God, we worship you because you're worthy of our worship with how you did it better than it's ever been done before. You are amazing. God, continue to stir our hearts and our minds to be in awe of you, to worship you, and give us the courage to follow you and your leadership in our life, even if that's difficult, even if it means self-sacrifice. God, make us those kinds of people. Make us Christ-like. Father, we love you, and we thank you. We thank you that you hear us. We thank you that you are with us. We ask these, these requests in the name of Jesus Christ. We pray with hope. Amen. Thank you, Resonate. Have a great week. Thank you for listening to the Resonate Church Sermon Podcast. If you are a college student in the Northwest, or if you simply want to see college students come to know Jesus, please connect with us by visiting Resonate.net.